I'm glad you're here because we have been patient practitioner now for about five years and we find ourselves in a very interesting pandemic and I wanted you to come on and just let's talk about it. Um, I'd rather talk to you face to face about this rather than yeah. over, you know, in one of our appointments. But why don't you um, tell everybody who you are and what you do? Okay. So my name is Yusuf Salibi. Um, the folks that know me call me JP. That's my nickname. And I am a physician, um, graduated from a very traditional medical school, and practiced emergency medicine for about 20 years. Um, sometime during the late 1990s, I realized there was more that could be done in medicine than what I was doing. So I embarked on a journey, um, kind of created my own curriculum because there wasn't anything really formal for training. Attended a lot of conferences all over the country. And now I practice 100% what we call functional medicine or integrative. Yeah. It takes a more holistic approach. We spend much more time with our patients. It's an unrushed atmosphere, so the, probably the most patients I'll see in a day are about five or six. Mm -hmm. And we dig very deep for root cause. That's the principle of functional medicine, is finding the root cause for any kind of chronic illness and try to prevent it. Was that something that, you know, I would imagine that would be taught in medical school. It's not... I'm assuming. Um, medical school, you know, the first couple of years is didactic classroom, and it's all basic science, biochemistry, micro, anatomy, physiology. And then you have your clinical years where you're kind of, we call them scut monkeys. You did all the stuff that nobody else wanted to do, right. starting IVs, collecting blood samples, things like that. Um, and then your postgraduate training is the meat and potatoes of where you get trained um, to be a clinician. Um, it varies from a couple of years to five or six years if you're a surgical subspecialty. But, you know, it's uh, very aligned to what the practice guidelines are. Mm -hmm. And they're pretty dated. I mean, to if there's a new advancement or a new discovery in medicine, it usually takes anywhere from 17 to 20 years for that to make its way into the practice guidelines. And so things get old really fast. Yeah, it sounds especially, like it. Yeah, especially with our technologies today and everything's very rapid paced. And if you have to wait 15 years for something to make its way into what's considered standard of care practice guidelines, then you're, you're practicing behind the times. Yeah. So, um, the, you know, for example, in medical school, the amount of time spent in the classroom on nutrition mm -hmm. was a one-hour lecture in all four years of medical school. And there was nothing in postgraduate training about nutrition. Um, vaccinations, when I did my pediatric rotations, it was all about the standard schedule of vaccines. They handed us a piece of paper and said, this is the CDC uh, standard recommendations for vaccinations for children. Learn it, memorize it, they're safe and effective. But they never once told us what went into vaccines, how the, the history of it was, you know, uh, not not discussed. Yeah. So, and it's the same way today. And I think that's part of the problem is that we have folks that are pra practicing medicine, by and large the majority, who are under the impression that certain things are safe and effective. And just because somebody in a um, higher level than them in a white coat is telling them that. Right. Well, one of the things that I have experienced, mm -hmm. my, even like literally myself in 
over the past two years of just literally having my mind blown from doing my own, starting to do my own research Mm -hmm. is the arrogance of, of physicians and nurses to say to your average everyday Joe, what do you know who you don't have the education, you know, you're, what you're saying isn't valid because you don't have MD behind your name. Right. When, you know, you're sitting here telling me they handed you a piece of paper and said the vaccines are safe. Mm-hmm. Like these parents are going in and doing way more research pulling studies from the 60s and 70s and, you know, having raw data in front of them to show that what we've been told this whole time isn't necessarily true. Right. So it's just interesting. So that goes uh, into the culture of medicine. And there's a a physician who wrote a book last year, or I think it was 2019, uh, Robert Pearl. Okay. And Robert's interesting. He's a plastic surgeon, retired now. He just does cleft palate repairs for, in, you know, in Doctors Without Borders mm-hmm. volunteer work. But he was the CEO of Kaiser Permanente uh, for almost 20 years. So he oversaw thousands of clinicians in that, you know, medical system. And he wrote a book um, called Uncaring recently. And I interviewed him for last year's symposium. Very interesting guy, but he talks about the culture of arrogance and you know we know better. You don't, and you know cutting people down or uh, deplatforming folks that don't agree. You can't even have a conversation at a conference anymore without people frothing at the mouth. And it's a very interesting book. It's it's a required read now for all of my nurse practitioners. Yeah. I'm like get a copy of Uncaring and read it cover to cover. That followed a, a book he wrote a few years previous called Mistreated. And it talked about his father, who was a dentist, Mm -hmm. and how when he moved from the East Coast to the West Coast, things fell through the cracks. And his father passed away prematurely because of medical mistakes. So, I mean, he is um, a spokesperson for what can go wrong in medicine and this culture of arrogance that we have to kind of get over. Well, my own experience with you was that you discovered something that had been misdiagnosed or undiagnosed with me for a very, very long time, you discovered my Lyme disease. Um, It's hard to believe that was five years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Life is very different since then, but it was my first, it was my first foray into functional medicine. I had no clue that it existed, which I would say the majority of your everyday American has no idea that, that it exists. I think more Mm -hmm. people are, waking up to it now because we've been forced to kind of realize that there are alternatives in treatment than what you get at your normal hospital system that trickles down into a practice kind of um, kind of medicine. But you did exactly what you said. You you got down to the root cause. We did tons of blood work. We looked at Mm -hmm. symptoms from when I was a child all the way to adulthood. And there's just this huge kind of roadmap, mystery map that you have to go back and look at. And um, I think that we're going to see a change in how medicine is done forever after this, which is a, it's a good thing, but it's being cracked down on, isn't it? Right. Yeah. So when I started, uh, when I embarked on my integrative practice, and this practice I have now uh, is, um, it was started in 2013. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, 
I had a practice in Savannah, Georgia for uh, five to eight years, um, similar practice. Um, that again, dug deep into root cause. Mm -hmm. So actually Lyme disease is, has been politicized much like the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic that we're yeah. in now has been politicized. And it's unfortunate. They used to go after doctors back then who were prescribing medications that were off label and that were unusual lengths of time for antibiotics right. for Lyme disease. Um, you know, 20 years ago, they were taking licenses away from doctors. Uh, who were doing this. And when I joined ILADS and became one of the first Lyme doctors in South Carolina, the director of that organization told me, well, now you have a target on your back. Explain what ILADS is. Oh, uh, I is the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society. And it is in uh, kind of in opposition in a way to the IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of America, which is the predominant medical society for infectious disease. So their belief is different in that we believe there's a condition called chronic Lyme disease. Since there's no ICD-10 code, and those are codes used in the medical community to identify a condition so that if you can file insurance claims right. and things like that. So being that there's no ICD-10 for chronic Lyme, it kind of, quote unquote, doesn't exist. And even today, you'll have doctors roll their eyes or laugh at patients that say they have chronic Lyme. I've had yeah. someone say that to me. Yeah, absolutely. So I warn my patients, when you go into the emergency room, try to kind of keep that in the down low because right. otherwise they'll roll your eyes and think you're a nut. So, um, so really, uh, there, there was, it was coming up in the consciousness of patients and clinicians. It, it's an epidemic. It's not just... Lyme endemic areas like, you know, Lyme, Connecticut, yeah. New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, it's all over the world. They have a problem in the Netherlands, in Germany, south of France. It's all over South America. So if you want Lyme disease, you can go in to Peru and get it there. Right. And uh, so what happened a few years ago is ILADS was working with some of the senators and representatives in Congress, mm -hmm. and they put together a working group of about a dozen or so clinicians from both sides of the fence, uh, patients, patient advocates, and some um, senators. And it was a working group. My mentor, Dr. Richard Horowitz, was part of that group. And it was supposed to be somewhere between a three and six year endeavor to kind of bring this epidemic up to um, the point where insurance companies would be forced to recognize it and pay for treatment. And then that was rolling along so nicely, we thought, oh, we're going to finally make headway after years um, of being in the shadows. To say. And then the pandemic started, the lockdown started, and that committee just was pushed to the back burner. Well, wasn't it also, and you can't speculate, but I certainly will speculate, was because one of the senators who had, the Lyme, had Lyme disease started digging and trying to figure out where it came from. And there is a strong theory that it was a government, a government run program that went awry. Right, yeah, there's that, that theory. <laughs> um, I don't know if I buy into that. I mean, I wasn't there. If I was a witness, I'd say maybe, okay, yes or no. But, um, I, you know, I hear that from patients. Sure, well, and there are those of us like, you know, on the conspiracy theory side of just digging, and I've I've re I've read that I've read research that um, 
that what's the uh, what's his name? The guy who came up with the spirit name is it? Um, oh, Bur- uh, Bungdorfia. Yes, and the the guy the the actual doctor Bung Bungdorfia. Bungdorfia. Yeah. yeah, he. Apparently, like on his deathbed, he confessed that it was some wow. kind of military program. Yeah, yeah, he passed away saying. a few years ago, yeah. but he, he was the one that they named the spirochete after that was the causative agent. Right. But I think whoever was designing that as a bioweapon did a bad job. <laughs> I mean, it, it takes forever to like hurt somebody right. or disable somebody or kill somebody. So it, it, you know, I can think of a thousand better things to do if you were in that trying to make sure. a weapon out of it. So that was a big fail in my opinion. That's but, really funny. But um yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's Lyme disease. So in that's Lyme. Well yeah, we could go on for three hours about that. Right. Um, now I'll just say this that my last conference at ILADS was in Orlando a few months ago. And uh, half the time was spent on COVID because COVID both the COVID vaccine, apparently, because I've seen a lot of vaccine injury with my Lyme patients, and the COVID infection can activate Lyme. So people might have a Lyme disease that's so subtle and occult right. it doesn't bother them. They get the COVID infection, and now they're wondering, well, is this long haulers or post-COVID syndrome? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, maybe it's reactivated Lyme. So my number of new Lyme cases has exponentially increased over the last two years that that just it breaks my heart because i know what those people are going through Mm -hmm. and it is so hard if the treatment the process of the treatment you told me you said you're going to get worse before you get better Mm -hmm. and i was like i had no idea what that meant until i went through it and um well let's talk about some covid okay let's talk about some covid so um tell me about I want to go kind of like backtrack to the beginning of the pandemic and when it all kind of first started coming out. Were you already aware of Dr. Corey and and that crowd? Yeah. So um, early in the pandemic, I knew things were awry. Um, I didn't like the way that the World Health Organization, CDC, NIH was handling the response. I knew there was something missing. I mean, rarely in my training, or I can't even think of an example in my training where you tell a patient who's febrile and has symptoms to just go home, drink water, take a little Tylenol. Oh, and if you get worse, we'll put you in the hospital and do this kind of inpatient protocol. So there are typically four pillars of a pandemic. The first is, you know, avoidance and things like hand washing and I don't want to say social distancing, but let's say physical distancing, because the social distancing has destroyed our culture and isolated people. Right. So you can't socially distance, but you can physically distance. That makes sense. If you've got the influenza flu bug, you stay at home. You don't go and infect people. Right. That's common sense. Right. Hand washing, good hygiene, uh, that all makes sense. Uh, the second pillar, which was wholly ignored and even is ignored to this day, which is totally insane, is uh, early treatment interventions. Right. Now, if we don't have a drug, now there's two pharmaceutical companies that have recently come out with two COVID pills, uh, but that's a little late. That's two years into the pandemic. Mm-hmm. What researchers do and, and clinicians when they observe something, and sometimes they observe it by accident, uh, they observed a couple of drugs that were very effective in quelling symptoms mm-hmm. and shutting down the spread. 
namely hydroxychloroquine, namely quinine, namely ivermectin. Right. So um, early on, I knew there was something amiss, but what did we do? Well, in treating my Lyme patients, I knew you have to enhance their immune system. Immediately. So, immediately. So we were using medicinal mushrooms, we were using high doses of vitamin D, and then reports were surfacing that the people dying from COVID were those with low D levels. So uh, vitamin C, we knew, had effects, antiviral effects. And um, zinc, there was an article written 10 years ago, now it's 12 years ago, that I reposted on Facebook. Uh, it was a peer-reviewed article on intracellular zinc and how it kills the replication of Zika, chikungunya, influenza, all these different coronaviruses. We didn't know about COVID back then, but we knew about the coronavirus. And it halted it in its tracks. And I just reposted it on Facebook and it was immediately taken down. That was my first ever censure of any medical, and it was a peer reviewed journal. And this was considered medical fact, not, not misinformation. Right. So um, so the nutraceutical bundles we were doing, that's the co complement of per, you know, over-the-counter medications and supplements mm -hmm. to help fight it. I was doing that on patients. And then Peter McCulley, when he addressed a Senate hearing late in the year, I think it was you know, September or, no or November uh, a couple of years ago, uh, talking about how everyone was ignoring that second pillar mm -hmm. of the pandemic response, I embraced it and I was like, I cannot stand by and let people get sick and nobody do anything. So I rounded up my nurse practitioners at the time we had four and I said, hey, are you guys willing to become frontline doctors? I mean, that's not how our practice was set up, not for urgent care. But so overnight we, we embraced urgent care. Our phone blew up uh, with so many calls or in inbox. So I had to create a separate landing page and a, a separate phone number and all that to handle the influx of patients. Um, so let me talk about the third and fourth pillar. The third pillar of a pandemic is inpatient treatment, which was well established, the use of things like remdesivir and eventually monoclonal antibodies mm -hmm. and those kind of things. And then the fourth pillar of a pandemic is the creation uh, and distribution of vaccines. Mm -hmm. So they skipped the second, they went to third, and then fourth immediately. Um, so it was out of sequence. And really, in, in, when you listen to people like Dr. Uh, Peter McCulley, who testified before Congress and came up with the basic protocol, as well as Dr. Zelenko, mm -hmm. as well as Dr. Corey and, and uh, Pierre, uh, Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick with the FLCCC, and also the American frontline doctors, mm -hmm. Simone. Simone, yeah. I mean, I, I watched, that was who I found first mm -hmm. when this all started. And there was a, um, another another physician from California mm -hmm. who had an urgent care. Yeah, the two, the two the guys. two guys. Mm -hmm. And they, the media did everything they could to, to rip them, them apart. Mm -hmm. They owned urgent care, so all automatically they were disqualified because the, the media basically said they don't see patients face-to-face -face anymore. Like, give me a break. Give like me a break. the NIH and the yes. World Health Organization that, Like, do. they see patients. Yeah, right. So I, I, started, I started following that group, and um, they were very brave. They were really brave. Sure, you had to be. You know, with the history of what happened to Lyme doctors uh, a decade before, 
I mean, you're putting your career, your livelihood on the line when you do that. Um, so, yeah, so in, in following um, Dr. McCulley and um, tuning in and supporting the FLCCC Alliance, we started using their protocols yeah. with great success. We were keeping people out of the hospitals. Unfortunately, hospitals have becoming um, almost like the killing fields in Cambodia. I mean, it's just, you know, you, 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 the, the, for a middle-aged man, 50-year-old man who goes into the hospital with COVID and requires ICU and ventilation, it's about an 83% death rate. I and mean, he has a less than 20% chance of surviving. Why are they still doing that, though? Like, why are they still... Why are they still giving them remdesivir and venting them? Is my, if they know it's, that, yeah. and then they're lying about it to the mm -hmm. public. Like you can't get a straight answer out of them right. as to what's actually happening. Right, I, it's it, blowing my mind. Yeah, that's 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 something that unnerved me and caused me great consternation. That in in medicine, it's observational stuff. Yeah, you've got your peer-reviewed journal articles. Yeah. But when you're in the front lines and seeing patients every day and notice certain trends, it's your obligation to figure out what's going on and if this isn't working, let's try something different. The protocols they started using with inpatients are two and a half years old now and they don't seem to work and they're being used globally. You know, uh, well, they've added in some monoclonal antibodies if you are in that window for them to be effective. And again, we don't know the, if they're as effective as they claim to be. Right. Um, there's great influence by the manufacturers, pharma, to influence what's cherry-picked for the peer-reviewed journals. Um, and then there's remdesivir, which was a failed um, drug from half decade before with Ebola. They had to shut down two clinical trials in Africa because um, 52 or plus percent of the people receiving it were dying. Right. So the, the, the treatment was worse than the Ebola virus. You had a better chance of surviving Ebola without anything. Right. So then it pops up again for use in COVID. Um, that doesn't make sense to me. And nothing has really come in to replace it. Um, people are thinking that it's not the, the coronavirus that's killing people because by the time they're in the hospital, in the ICU, it, enough days have passed so that the virus itself is out of their system mm -hmm. and it's a non-issue. It's the aftermath of, um, of what that is, uh, the consequences of what the virus did right. that takes over the inflammation in the lungs and the liver and all that kind of stuff. So um, the, the treatment for inpatient hasn't changed and it should have. And doctors standing by and seeing this happening and, and buttoning up their lips and not doing anything it is appalling to me. Now, I know there are some that understand what's going on and will we'll try to enact some change, but they're being sanctioned. They're being warned. They're being terminated. I mean, um, Dr. McCor uh, the, uh, Dr. Corey has been terminated from several different positions up in New York State. He had to leave Wisconsin for New York State, and he can't get a job. Uh, Paul Merrick was sanctioned by his hospital um, for filing a lawsuit against them because they were disallowing him to use ivermectin in inpatients. So he lost his job. But so, my question, yeah. can, do you mind if I yeah, interrupt? Yeah, sure. Why would, I understand that an 
hospital administration, as long as they're getting money from the government or from whoever, mm-hmm. they have to fo- they have to follow the rules. But why, <laughs> if we know that ivermectin is treating people better with better results than what the current protocols are, why are they going? Why would they keep you from using it? It doesn't make sense. Well, there's there's their narrative, and I think there's a huge influence of pharma uh, to to why they're um, wanting to use their drugs, remdesivir, monoclonal antibodies, and these two new pills for uh, for COVID, and they want to crush everything else. They don't want to hear about hydroxychloroquine, and it, and that was politicized during the Trump yeah. administration. You know, it became politicized very rapidly, and then people took sides. You know, if you were a, a Democrat, you were here. If you were a Republican, you were there. And and that that kind of influence on science is very detrimental to scientific mm-hmm. endeavors. So um, you have the big influence of pharma and um, and profit. It's profit driven. The pharmaceutical companies are making billions of dollars. The testing. The um, I don't order COVID testing on folks I, unless they need it to get back to work. Right. I don't even recommend it. Um, I treat it clinically. If you got a viral infection, many of the drugs we use will cross over to influenza and uh, rhinovirus. It's not just COVID. Um, so the testing is a racket, in my opinion. Um, and then you have the government stepping in and buying billions or spending billions of dollars buying test kits for everybody. That's a racket. Somebody's profiting from that. Sure. Uh, same thing with um, the monoclonal antibodies. You could get them free. Well, nothing is free in life. So the government <laughs> pays for them and distributes them. Right. So again, somebody's getting very wealthy off of the taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. And you see that time and time again. So um, you know, g- given these facts, there's that. And then there's the influence of pharma on our government, our bureaucrats. Yeah. You know, some folks that are in office for a period of time are, you know, in bed with the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. It's what I call the medical industrial complex. Mm-hmm. You know, so President Eisenhower warned us about the military industrial complex right. when he left office in the 50s. Uh, so there's a medical industrial mm-hmm. complex, and it's really scary. And now it's crossed over into uh, big tech mm-hmm. and it's crossed over into the media. So all it's media. All, well, it's all connected. Yeah, it's all, all connected. It. So the media is, is bought and paid for. Right. Um, some of these institutions, big centers, you know, are bought and paid for by pharma. I mean, we used to see that back in the cholesterol statin days um, where certain research was ignored. Right. Because they were getting huge grants to study statin therapy for for cardiovascular disease, and um, and I think also the medical journals are bought and paid for. I mean, you have see, to... that's a that's a world that those of us that are non clinical we don't even the medical journal world. That's a, it's it's kind of foreign, right? Because we don't. I mean, I wouldn't even know how to access that stuff unless you right. shared it, which even your stuff is getting beginning to get censored. Yeah. So no time in history have we seen the number of retractions. That's a peer-reviewed journal article that passes peer review. It is published in a journal that now the journal editors say, well, wait a minute, that's no good. We got to pull it out. I mean, it's been an exponential rise. This isn't just start with a pandemic. This started about five years ago. It was rare that a peer-reviewed journal article would be 
retracted. But we're seeing it in JAMA, New England Journal, British Medical Journal, Lancet, all the big what they call powerful journals mm -hmm. that physicians like me rely on to help us guide what we're going to do for our patients. Right. So you have to flip through three pages of advertisements from pharmaceutical um, drugs to get to read an article. And there were three editor, former editors from three medical journals. I want to say one was Lancet, one was British Medical Journal, and one was the Annals of Internal Medicine, I believe. Uh, don't count me on that last one. But they have all basically stated on the record that they've been kind of bought and paid for by pharma, that they're, not, they're no longer credible. I can't trust anything now that comes out of the journals. And I'm like, at a loss now, where do I have to go? So I have to look at a broader range of journals. I have to look at the you know International Pakistani Journal for Arthritis to look at things to treat osteoarthritis. I can't just look at Lancet anymore. So we call those, it's a kind of a degrading term, a pejorative term called throwaway journals. Mm -hmm. These are journals that you look at for 10 minutes and then toss them. Uh, but you know they may be a more reliable source. We're also noticing we're getting feedback from Dr. McCauley and Dr. Corey. Mm -hmm. Dr. Corey went to publish a paper and it was rejected by multiple journals. So there's an active force out there that's trying to really squash um, differing opinions. And in medicine, you need a differing opinion. I mean, that's what science is all about. You got well, it's going to turn into a self-publishing kind of like when the the traditional publishing industry also became that way where they started hiring ghostwriters mm -hmm. for your big name authors mm -hmm. and the big name authors just kind of collected a paycheck and they had all these ghostwriters and then they you know the publishing industry made billions off of these you know this 15 of your favorite authors um and then everybody else had to self-publish because you can't get mm -hmm. signed anymore. It's going to be the same. It's going to be similar. Right. You're just going to have to have your fall, you know, your core people that you resonate with, and and they're going to self-publish, and you just <laughs> well, have I, to use your discernment, I guess. Right. Well, I, I don't know how books get published so quickly. I, I published a book. I self-published a book on adaptogen herbs back in 2006. Mm -hmm. I had a co-author that was helping me, and it took us three years to publish a book. And it's a thin little paperback; yeah. it's not a you know huge volume tome of any you know. But it took me a long time. And then you hear you see books being published, you know, two two weeks after some headline, you know, in the news, and you're like, how the heck did they do that that quickly? So yeah, there's there's a it's lot of fun, funny business it's going all on. It's all connected. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the vaccines. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Do I dare? <laughs> I do, do I dare? I don't even know where to begin to ask you, you know. like to, to begin to ask you. Okay, so where do we even start? Well, let me break the ice. Why don't you break the ice? And I want to make sure I don't have like this red laser dot on my forehead from a sniper rifle. Well, we are obviously, <laughs> I want to just give a shout out to my FBI agent. How are you doing today? No, yeah, I'm just kidding. Yeah. So that, that I was sort of on the fence about at the onset. I wasn't recommending it, nor was I telling my patients to avoid it. I have family members. Both of my kids, teenage kids, have been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. My sister, my father. My father's been boosted. Mm -hmm. You know, he's 87. Um, that was a personal decision. I didn't really 
push back too much on it. I said, just be careful, do your research. That's what I told my patients. I yeah. said, I can't really recommend like which one's better than the other that are available to us in this country. I said, but do your research, think about it. Um, I don't have to, I didn't ever have to do that with the influenza vaccine or the shingles vaccine so much. And I got my tetanus booster two years ago, so I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I wanna make that crystal clear. Although I am diving deep into the history of vaccines because my medical education was paltry. Uh, like maybe five minute discussion about vaccines. So I'm reading a book that was published in 2011 and then republished in 2015 called Dissolving Illusions. Uh, it's by a researcher and a doctor. I think her name is Humphrey. She's a nephrologist. And she noticed that people getting vaccinated, oh, these are, this is pre-COVID stuff, this is years ago, would have renal failure. And when she brought it to the attention of other doctors, they would laugh at her and say, oh, come on, don't you know that vaccines are safe and effective? So she embarked on that and did her own research and had to go back in history to look at studies from the 50s and 60s and international uh, data to come to the conclusion that a lot of these vaccines were dangerous. And we know that, for instance, the swine flu vaccine was harmful. Mm -hmm. We know that there was a Lyme vaccine that they had to discontinue because it was because killing, it was killing people. Killing people. Uh, an RSV, that's respiratory syncytovirus, which affects and kills a lot of little babies okay. and kids. They tried that vaccine. It, it was more harmful than the disease itself, so they discontinued that. And it goes on today. And I, I don't think that the current vaccines in development, which were kind of novel since they're mRNA-derived, uh, are escaping that kind of problem. And we're, we're discovering a lot of vaccine injury, observational stuff in my practice mm -hmm. that got to the point where, and then I'm also listening to data now from McCulley and from Corey, and they were quiet about the vaccines in the beginning. They didn't really mention it, uh, but now they're very vocal, very vocal. So in the last six months, I'd have to say that I can't really encourage the use of them. Which yeah. has been the big push. Right. It, it is the push. It's, yeah. you know, at first it was, and, and, and we're being so gaslit. That's my, that is my mm -hmm. frustration with it is that like, we all experienced this over two years. We literally heard Joe Biden say, if you get the vaccine, you won't get COVID. There's mm -hmm. a actual clip of him saying mm -hmm. that from stage. Right. Well, it's not only him, but it's it's the people who he relies on for information. Right. I mean, the NIH, the CDC, WHO, get vaxxed, it's going to protect you. Well, that failed. So now they're saying, well, it'll mitigate the disease. It'll keep you out of the hospital. Well, that data may be erroneous, too, because in some highly vaccinated states like Israel mm -hmm. and uh, some states in India, we can talk about those, uh, there seems to be a higher incidence of hospitalizations in those fully vaccinated. You so, know, so have you heard um, what I've just in this past week, what I've been hearing is vaccine induced AIDS. Have you been hearing about that too? I've heard about that. Again, I haven't had an opportunity to dive into all that, but I remember some headlines in some of the um, articles I get um, to you know, watch out, test your patients for HIV who've been vaccinated. Again, could be a rumor. I don't know. Right. I can't really comment. I didn't dive into that. Sure. But, you know, to me, it would make sense. I mean, it is what acquired autoimmune deficiency syndrome. Is that, 
It would right. be vaccine so acquired. At AIDS, maybe not do the HIV virus. I don't know, yeah. but uh, um, acquired immune deficiency in the strict sense of that definition. Yeah, I mean, I know I've seen it firsthand. People with autoimmune disease. I mean, they take a major hit when they get vaccinated. And I'm not just talking about the COVID vaccines. I'm talking about influenza vaccines. I'm talking about shingles vaccines uh, can do that to them. So you have to be super careful. They've got an abnormal immune system already. Right. You're introducing something foreign in a weird way and it can trigger off things. So mm -hmm. it can flare up their, uh, their AI, their autoimmune illness. Mm -hmm. So tell me about some of the things you've been seeing in your vaccine injury patients. Yeah. So uh, close to home, my sister, uh, she has ulcerative colitis, was in remission for five years. She took the Johnson & Johnson, and within, I think, 48 hours, it flared up. And there's still some I can't talk to, maybe it's going to be a HIPAA violation. Sure, sure. <laughs> but you know, there's some other issues with her health that have deteriorated. So that's close to home, you know. But, you know, I had a, I have a daughter and a son who were vaccinated, and they did okay. Right. So it's not every—I think there's a genetic predisposition yeah. for sure. There's some other components we, we don't know uh, that are contributing. Um, what comes to mind are two patients. Uh, one was a middle-aged woman who, when I first saw her, was in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. So she got the vet one dose of the vaccine, and uh, she lost the ability to walk. Uh, we worked with her, and we discovered that she had a cult Lyme. She was positive for Lyme and some co-infections she did not know about. She stepped up, rolled up her sleeve, and boom, she fell apart. She is now, she transitioned to a walker and, and now with a cane, but her gait is still very unstable and very slow. Mm -hmm. But she's on protocol, so we're treating her for vaccine injury as well as um, Lyme. Lyme. Yeah. The other was a longstanding... Uh, Lyme patient of mine, young young woman who, uh, because the hospital she worked at, she was a physical therapist, mm -hmm. required her to get vaccinated. She takes her first shot, and she has immediate problems, neuropsychiatric problems, mostly neurological, involuntary movements, twitching. The whole, I want to say, either right or left side of her body was flaccid, kind of almost like a Bell's, like palsy, Bell's palsy, kind of, yeah. like she'd had a stroke. Mm -hmm. She's recovered, thank goodness. Now she she only has one little involuntary twitch, and that's in her nose. And she kind of looks like bewitched, you know, twinkle, yeah. twinkle. Um, but that's about it. But it bothers her. I mean, sure. it's right front center, and uh, all is all is top of mind. But um, so we're seeing some other things. Urticaria, which is hives, mm -hmm. had a patient who had the second two shots and then a booster, and it was after all that that she now has chronic hives. hives. Yeah. The VAERS, you know, the VAERS system, I think, is reporting number astronomical numbers that they've never seen yeah. before. But also, I'm hearing they're not actually reporting. Well, it's a voluntary reporting system, and I think some of that data has been manipulated. Um, but, you know, you have to have the doctor submit, and it's a lengthy, drawn-out process. And then patients can submit, right. and most of them probably don't. So there's that problem with how many people are getting, you know, reporting it. Yeah. So there was a report that came out at a, I think a Senate hearing 
uh, with the Department of Defense. So they have. Oh, is this very, what you posted last night uh, on Facebook? Great. I couldn't believe those yeah, numbers. Yeah. So yeah, crazy. So the DOD um, has sort of their own internal VAERS system, if you will, but it's much more comprehensive and much more accurate because they're reporting on all the enlisted folks and anyone sure. that's a DOD. And their D is the DOD, so it's, it's DOD. like so when they started posting some of their data, it was unbelievable about the number of myocardial infarctions and myocarditis and neurological things that have just exponentially risen as a result of the vaccines. Um, but, but then you also have data um, that um, Dr. Um, Pierre Corey had posted recently in, a, I think, a January hearing in the Senate. He was talking about data from Peru, Argentina, uh, Japan, on the vaccinated and unvaccinated, and the, the folks that are being kept out of the hospital, you know, 75% recovery, 88% reduction in deaths in one large study of thousands of people that um, were, unvac you know, were unvaccinated. Or, no, really not the vaccine so much, I'm sorry, it's more of the use of ivermectin. Right. So in the use of ivermectin, early treatment uh, was reducing the amount of admissions and certainly an amount of deaths. And there yeah. were countries that actually handed it out as, as little packets, right. little ivermectin packets so that they- Started out in what we would consider third world countries, which now are surpassing America in healthcare. America is down in the bottom now of, and it's, it's, it's disgusting because we always thought America, United States is the top dog. You know, we're, right. we're the leaders in healthcare and now we've fallen behind many, many other countries. But uh, a little a state in India, northern part of India, called Uttar Pradesh, which has the population of about half the entire population of our country yeah. in this state, they did some very accurate tracking of people who had the infection. They would treat the infected and those contacts with a kit of nutraceuticals and ivermectin, and they have essentially eradicated COVID. I think in September there were 11 cases of COVID, no, no deaths, just 11 cases, and we're talking- Like in the state. In the state of Uttar Pradesh, Northern India, yeah. which the population is like 204 million people. I mean, that's more than half the population of this country. Anyway, they managed to eradicate it essentially. And this could have been done with early treatments. Sure. I mean, we would have been out of this pandemic a year and a half ago if that was the case. So there are many examples of that. The, the Swedish studies, what's happened in Sweden has been totally twisted and spun around to make it look like they didn't know what they were doing and they have low incidence. If you look at highly vaccinated uh, states like, like Israel, Israel, yeah, you're seeing problems. And again, the data is manipulated. So I had a nurse come in um, who works at a local hospital. She's a patient and she informed me that most of the people she sees coming through the ER, she's an ER nurse, mm -hmm were unvaccinated. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Now, when you say unvaccinated, does that mean they don't have their booster? I mean, maybe they got the first two shots, but right. they aren't boosted, so they're considered unvaccinated right. or not fully vaccinated. She wasn't sure. Uh, again, this is an observation she made. I don't know where that data is coming from, but I was like, you know, I told her, I said, I'm hearing things the opposite. I'm hearing that folks that are in the ICU are fully vaccinated right. and are more susceptible. So again, I don't know where I can go to, to find the truth. It's very difficult now to find a reliable truth because you get 
two journals reporting two opposite things. It's very confusing. Well, I think that that is what, I mean, what we're doing here today is, is the perfect example of what you have to do is you have to keep digging and you have to look to alternate sources and just start asking questions. And that's the problem that I have with what, what we're hearing from the people at the top who are supposed to be taking care of us, mm -hmm. you know, the director of the CDC and Lord Fauci, I like to call him Lord mm -hmm. Fauci. Um, they don't want us, us asking questions, right. which that to me is like the biggest red flag of all. Right, <laughs> absolutely. When, when they don't want to come and do a live debate and they've been offered the opportunity, you know, we'll live debate you on television uh, in front of an audience. Yeah. Um, you present your information and your quote unquote science and the opposing side, which is, you know, Dr. Corey, Dr. McCulley, They'll uh, present their information and their data, and we'll let the American public or the world public decide. But every opportunity that was offered by FLCCC and some other doctors uh, who support that early treatment, they were, or they were shut down. People just didn't show up for those live events. Um, so that's scary. And then when you also purport uh, things as safe and effective and you don't have the years of data, you know, to, to say that about a va any vaccine, you need five to seven years of data right. before you sh honestly can say something's effective and safe. I mean, we're finding out drugs that are FDA approved 10 years later have now black box warnings, um, you know, um, and it's taken that long a period of time to realize that. Right. So that's what made me nervous about vaccine safety with the current vaccine. Mm -hmm was how they were saying, oh, it's safe and effective in pregnant women and children. Uh, where's the data? My question is, where's the data? And they avoid that question. Well, it's the biggest drug trial of all time is actually happening right now to the public. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I mean, they're going to take the data 10 years from now, and we're gonna, it's going to be a completely... Completely different story. Oh, yeah. Totally different story. Five, ten years from now, there'll be books written, documentaries on this whole thing. It's it's kind of like what happened with, um, you know, to the tobacco mm -hmm. um, lobby and how they were, you know, and they had experts that they would hire that were, quote, unquote, scientists that said there's no correlation between tobacco smoking and, you know, addiction and cancer. cardiovascular you know, cancer. Um, so, yeah, that's going to happen. Um, but... The people that are suffering are the ones that are suffering today because of it. So, yeah. How, if someone who's listening to this right now is interested in shifting their course of of their healthcare experience and they're ready to start looking to alternate sources, what's what's your best recommendation recommendation for someone to start on that journey? Yeah. So we're seeing a lot of converts. I mean, um, our, my practice has felt that we've had to scale up and I've ha had to hire nurse practitioners mm -hmm. and PAs to help me with my patient load. Some of them have come in seeking early treatment or even a prevention prescription for ivermectin and then saying, you know what, you guys are doing it right. My family doctor is just no longer effective for me and I'm gonna switch over. So we're getting folks leaving the mainstream medical practice seeking care in a more functional, holistic-minded uh, practice. So there are some resources. People with Lyme disease should go to the ILADS, I-L-A-D-S.org website. It's a great resource. 
Um, the IFM, the Institute for Functional Medicine, is another that can help people locate a functional medicine doctor near where they live because mm -hmm. they can do a, a physician search using their zip code. Um, you know, so there are resources out there. There are some good books to read. Uh, but it's, it's kind of, there needs to be a national awakening because what we're suffering from is this kind of global mass kind of psychosis where people, uh, and I hate to say it, it starts with the clinicians that are in the hospitals, that are in the clinics, that are hardline one side or the other, and they are not willing to talk, and they're practicing in a cloud, and they think they're doing the right thing. Do you really think that they think that, that they're doing the right thing? There are some folks that I think honestly believe what they're doing is correct. And uh, there are some that are practicing and they just button their lip and they do what they're told because they don't want to lose their job. Right. Because it's going to affect their income, their mortgage payment, the kids in college. And they're too afraid. And they've seen what has happened to some other docs. Um, and I don't know if it's if I should mention this now or not, but... You know, a few days ago, I got a letter from the South Carolina Medical Board, the LLR, uh, saying they have opened up an investigation on me and my center because we prescribed ivermectin to a patient. Now, um, I know of another physician in the area, in the low country, uh, who was, um, she got her letter four or five months ago, and nothing came of it. Mm -hmm. They dismissed her case. The matter of fact, they dismissed her case the same day I got my letter. I know of another uh, nurse practitioner who wrote Coltracine for COVID lung, which is an off-label use, mm -hmm. and I believe she was reported by a pharmacist uh, to the board. So she's on. They have an open investigation. These are warning shots they're sending out to intimidate practitioners, like do it our way, or you might lose your license, or you might get sanctioned. So I'm not buckling to that. I have not changed, um, you know, my practice habits because I my my first obligation is to my patients. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. It doesn't surprise me about knowing you. It doesn't surprise me that you're gonna say, sure. "I'm," you know, send me the letter. Okay. Yeah. I hope that it. Well, I know it's going to get dismissed right. as well, but I think that I, the. In my opinion, the purpose of you getting that letter was so that you could tell people that you got that letter probably you know, i was waiting for that second shoe to drop i mean i knew it was coming sure it's like well what's taking them so long but um, for ivermectin yeah for ivermectin which has been used off-label for so many different things for a very very long time right and on label i mean it's right. fda approved uh world health organization approves it for the last 40 years to treat river blindness yeah onchocerciosis, um, and also filiarius, which is elephantitis, mm -hmm. very debilitating disease. You know, the river blindness is very debilitating. People lose their vision, then they become useless to their village. And we're talking, um, you know, Africa, the tropics, South America, uh, used in pregnant women, used in children without any incidence of overdose or untoward effects. It's one of the safest. It's safer than Tylenol, for heaven's sakes. Right. More people die from over-the-counter counter Tylenol yeah. than, um, than uh, certainly ivermectin, for one. Um, but uh, it's been vilified, and it was, uh, you know, stated as a horse paste or horse dewormer. Yeah, that was... Um... Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. That was that was a major spin that I think blew up in their face. Oh, it did. It made yeah. them look I yeah, mean, it foolish. made them look foolish. Like, very foolish. 
Um, and, uh, and then you can't take those people, those pundits that were on like CNN or whatever, you can't take them seriously anymore. They sold out. They didn't do their homework. Either they just read off the teleprompter like n morons or they didn't do their homework and research because they certainly wouldn't put their name and reputation at stake repeating that information. Yeah. But it seemed to me that everyone got, everyone in the news agencies got that one fax that had all that information because you can tell from what they talk, they talk about, you know, a surge. Mm -hmm. I hate that word, surge. I don't use it in, in my vernacular anymore. Um, it, there are certain words that come up time and again, right. no matter if you're looking at CNN, NPR, whatever news agency. So I'm thinking everyone's reading off that same memo. Sure, it's COVID yeah. lingo. And it's coming from, it's probably coming from pharma. You know, it's probably coming from one small group of people and they're just right. disseminating the information sure. amongst the different groups. Sure. I think we're getting ready to see a huge shift. Well, it's already it's it's already happening. The shift is happening. People are saying, I'm looking at alternate Oh yeah. alternate resources now. Mm -hmm. Things are going to change. Your you're already your practice is already changing. It's already experienced that. So yeah. Yeah, and we're working with, um, I'll say this, so Simone Gold um, and her organization, I'm working with them closely in a um, ad hoc committee put together for what they're calling the Gold Care Clinics. Okay. It'll oh, be, I read about this. Yeah. yeah. So she is trying to establish clinics all over. I think they were down in Orlando recently looking to open up some in Mississippi. Okay. So some areas of the country, that are, people are donating buildings to the effort. Um, and so it's going to be outside of the influences of insurance. It'll be a cash practice or what we call DPC, right. direct primary care, avoiding insurance influences. Which is, by the way, for everybody listening, how I contractually work with Dr. Salibi is I we bypass insurance completely. And that was a big jump for me because mm -hmm. I just had traditionally grown up with you know, you pay your copay, right. they file it, and then you pay whatever else right. is after that. And um, when we ran the numbers before we decided to become monthly, um, you have a great membership program for your practice. Um, and we ran the numbers and we were like, this makes perfect sense. Yeah. Like in, it, the, in the long run. In the long in the, term. Ten year, ten year long term, you're yeah. going to save a lot of money in chronic care and prescriptions and procedures and things like that. Sure. Yeah, but it's a hard sell for a lot of people who depend on their health insurance. And right. when you're paying, I'm, I have catastrophic coverage for right. me and my family, and it's a big chunk of change. And when you're like, well, I have to you know, look away from that and go pay out of pocket for stuff. But in the long run, it'll save you money. Sure, you and know? save your life Yeah, as well. Because mm -hmm. there's, there's that element of being, I've never been to a doctor where I got to sit across the table, not across the exam room, but literally across from you at your desk and have a conversation about my health before we even drew blood or you looked at my ears with a stethoscope. You know what I mean? That is a, it's a totally different shift of experience. It's a different paradigm shift. And I'm trying to promote that. So five years ago, I established a nonprofit the Priority Health Academy to help train and teach mostly nurse practitioners and PAs. Mm -hmm. We host an annual symposium. Right. And I'm, I'm working with a, a, a wonderful lady out of um, uh, Jacksonville, Florida. We're trying to scale that up, the nonprofit, as well as another uh, side academy to help train 
Uh, we might be looking at training folks leaving conventional medicine and wanting to do the non-traditional clinics yeah. but don't know how to get started sure you know, i think that, that's a great right. i think you're gonna have a lot of interest in that yep. um how can people find out about the symposium so the symposium uh, we have a facebook uh listing a priority health academy you can find us on facebook and there is a link off of my blogs and social media pages my caroline holistic medicine facebook page there are links to the symposium it's open to the public we'll have we have some great speakers this year as we did last uh, some exciting topics in functional medicine. Um, so there are, you know, I th there's a fee now this year. It's, I think it's $100 to get a ticket to get in. Um, after March 15th, it's $150. It goes up a bit. So if they register early, they'll save. But um, and we're the, all that money goes to support the nonprofit. That's so we great. can train our nurse practitioners who are actually more, much more receptive to this kind of practice than let's say some MDs and DOs. Oh, I can imagine. I can <laughs> so, imagine. Yeah, like they say, it's it's hard to, you know, train a, an old dog in a new trick. <laughs> so, but I've got some fantastic providers that um, are excited about learning um, and, and increasing their professional acumen in, in functional medicine that have joined us and that are out there that attend our conferences. Yeah. Yeah, well, I appreciate you hanging out with me today and talking oh. about the stuff. I hope that you can come back again soon and that maybe things will have shifted a little bit more and we'll have some exciting things some to talk happy, about. Some happy stuff to talk about. Well, Whitney, That's it's it. always a pleasure talking you. to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course.